But you know, gifts don't always get the reaction you'd hope for. Now sometimes, I don't know, maybe a degree of the problem is with the giver. Maybe sometimes we get the gift all wrong. More often though, I think the problem is with the receiver. It's with their attitude. Well, with the gifts, the, the kind of gifts that we're going to be looking at tonight, the problem is never with the giver. The problem is never with the gifts. Any problems are always down to the attitudes, to the actions, the reactions of those who receive the gifts. But what exactly are we looking at tonight? Well, in the... Is that me again popping away? I'm fine. That's the first time anybody's said that to me for years. Thank you, Margaret. But what exactly are we looking at tonight? Well, in the opening six verses of Ephesians chapter 4, which we looked at prior to Christmas, the focus there was on God's desire for unity among his people and on the the kind of Christ-like character we need, the kind of spirit-yielded life that we need to live in order to achieve and to maintain this unity that is God's desire for us. Well, what we're moving on to look at tonight are the gifts that God provides us in order that we might maintain unity. Looking at the fact that that God does provide us with what we need to maintain unity. If only we are prepared to accept and to use properly, to respond properly to what he has given. But before we move in to look at this passage in a bit more depth, there's one thing of a more general nature that I'd like to point out to you. And that is that in the first six verses of this chapter, there is an emphasis on all, on all of us, which very much ties in with the the central theme of unity we've discussed and shared. But here in verse 7, this section opens up with a different, with a contrasting emphasis. But to each of us, grace has been given. So the emphasis is moving here then from the group, from the body, from all of us, to the individual, each of us, that gifts are given to each of us, that as they are exercised by each of us, help the church to maintain and grow in unity and also in spiritual maturity. But you see, what what this makes clear, what this clears up for us, is that when Paul talks of unity, he's not talking about uniformity. He's not saying that everybody has to be exactly the same. No, there can be unity. We can share a common faith, a common passion, and a common vision. And yet within that unity, there is also room for diversity, for us being different, for us being individuals. You see, Christians and churches don't need to be the same, to be real, to be authentic, and to be part of the one body. In fact, I want to say when Christians and churches are the same, and when people insist that you've got to be just like us to be the real thing, well, that's not just scary, and by the way, it is scary, but it's out and out wrong and it's dangerous. Harold Honer makes what I find a very helpful comment on, on Paul's view of Christian unity, and, and here it is, referring to the teaching that we find in these verses. He says, Paul proceeds to show 
that unity does not mean uniformity, but harmony. Get it? We don't have to be identical. We don't have to have exactly the same views on everything. We don't have to worship in precisely the same way, etc., to have unity. No, all we need is harmony. Harmony that comes through a shared faith in Christ, a common experience of the life of the Spirit. And there is plenty of room in a truly united church, in a church living in true unity for individuals and for varieties of church expression. But back to to these gifts that God gives that we might maintain and grow in unity. Let's open up this passage then by looking first of all at the giver of these gifts in verses 7 to 10. We read, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he laid captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now the first point we need to to make here, I think, and get it out of the way, is that the verse that, that Paul quotes is from Psalm 68, verse 18. That verse, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. However, having said that, there are significant differences in the way that Paul quotes this verse from the actual Old Testament original. One, of course, is that he replaces God the Father here with Christ the Son. But for us, coming from a Christian perspective, recognizing as Christ as God in the form of a man, that's no real problem whatsoever. But there are a number of other differences here. And central to these, and I think of real significance, is the fact that the original Psalm 68, 18, there it talks of God receiving gifts. Whereas here in Ephesians 4, 8, it talks of Christ giving gifts, that he gave gifts to men. Now, various solutions for these differences have been proposed among them that Paul either deliberately misquoted here or unintentionally misquoted the Old Testament. Well, neither of these, for me, seems to fit with the the Paul that the New Testament reveals to us. A Paul who is a man of incredible intellect and someone who valued God and the Word of God as highly as anyone ever has in all history. A better solution to this, though, I think, is suggested by John Stott, and it's along these lines. And that's to recognize first that the background scenario to this verse lies in the ancient custom, common in the ancient world, that once an enemy had been conquered, the spoils of war, the wealth of those conquered, would first of all be taken in, would first of all be received by the conquering king. And then much of this would then be distributed, would then be given out to his followers. Now, now the verb that's used in the original in the Hebrew can actually be translated either brought or received. So you see, the way that Paul translates Psalm 68, 18 here is actually a legitimate translation. 
It's not common, but there are some other Old Testament manuscripts that actually do translate this verse very similar to the way Paul does here in Ephesians. So you see, what Paul is actually doing here is he's using this verse, he's choosing to translate this verse in a way that fits the context of the Ephesians in order to to communicate, to get across something of what God has done for his people in Christ. But he's doing this in a way that is consistent both with the original text and with the Ephesian context, which I believe is entirely legitimate. But what exactly is Paul saying here then about this particular aspect of God's blessing in Christ? Well, he opens this up with his comment on this in the following verses. Verse 9, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now, now the two key concepts here clearly are Christ ascending, ascending to the heavens, to the right hand of the Father, and also his descending to the lower earthly regions. Now, let's tackle these in what to me seems the most logical order. So first, he descended to the lower earthly regions. Well, I believe that must surely refer to the incarnation. Refer to the fact that God became man in Jesus Christ. That he left the glory of heaven to come down to this earth and live among mankind. But you know, I think there's even more to this than that. That the emphasis on the lower earthly regions, that this points us towards the depth of what Christ endured on this earth for our sins. That on this earth, as he came to this earth, he suffered humiliation and the agony of the cross. As there on that cross, he gave his perfect sinless life to pay the price of our sin, of that sin that separates us from a holy God. So yes, Jesus descended to the lower earthly regions. He went as low as this world, as our sin could take anyone. And he did it all for us. He did it all because he loves us. But then it goes on and it says that he ascended. That death was not the end for Jesus. That the cross was not the end. No, for three days later, he rose from the dead, demonstrating by doing so his victory over sin and evil, over death. And over all the powers of hell. And then 40 days later, he ascended. Ascended to the right hand of the Father. To that position which symbolizes above all else his power and authority. And because of this, because of this victory, because he has completed this ministry given to him, born out of the love of the Father and the Son for each one of us, And because of that position of power and authority, Jesus is able to give gifts to the church he has established. First the gift of the Spirit and then flowing from that, the gifts of the Spirit. Gifts that are given to help the church to grow in unity, to help the church to grow in spiritual maturity 
and then to reach out with his love to a needy world. Would you notice how verse 10 finishes this section? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now that, I think, tells us something very important. For too often when people think about gifts, about gifts of the Spirit, it's all very self-centered. It's all very inward-looking at the individual level. It's about our experience. It's about me being blessed. And at the church level, it's about gifts being used to minister to the church. It's about gifts being used to minister to build up the church. You see, what I believe Paul's saying here and suggesting here is that the gifts certainly aren't primarily for the benefit of the individual. Nor even only are they for the blessing and for the building up of the church. They are for that, but they are for more than that. That the ultimate end of the gifts is intended to be in enabling the church to join with Jesus Christ in that great mission of taking his message, his love, in power to the world around us. And Paul expresses, I think, something of the wonder of this by that phrase, in order to fill the whole universe. That's why Christ gives gifts to the church. Not for our excitement, not primarily that we might feel blessed or feel good about ourselves, not even so that the church might be ministered to. Well, there's undoubtedly a place for that, and that is essential. But you see, the journey is supposed to end in us going out in ministry to, in us sharing the love of Christ with this needy world. And you know, if we're not doing that, then happy though we might be, efficient, well-organized, and well-catered to, as a church, we might be. Yet still, we are falling short. Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Christ, the gifts of the Spirit, they are not having their way in us, not working their way out in our lives in the way they should. But let's move on from the giver to look at the nature of these gifts. And this is covered here in verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Well, let's just look at each of these briefly in turn. First, apostles. Now, the basic meaning of this word is sent. To send. So apostles then, at the base level, are those who are sent out on mission. Those who are sent out to take the message of Christ. Those who are sent out to establish new churches around the world founded on the word, on the truth of Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, there are two main ways in which this word, this title is used. First of all, there are the foundational apostles. Those who in Ephesians 2.20, Paul describes as the foundation of the church. All men who were with Jesus during his ministry, who were eyewitnesses to his resurrection, to whose number was added the Apostle Paul, who describes himself in 1 Corinthians 15.8 as one untimely, one abnormally born. 
Now you see, these men, like the prophets of the Old Testament, had given to them the revelation of God's Word. And they were charged with establishing the early church on the foundation of Christ, on the foundation of the Word of God. These are the foundational apostles. And of their number, men of their status, with their authority, of these there will be no more. There have been those, though, who have claimed to be apostles in this sense. I believe that to be wrong and to be dangerous. There is, though, a continuing gift of apostle in the New Testament, what have been called by some apostles of the churches, and that is those who are gifted and called by God and sent out by God to establish in a, in a smaller way new churches, often in unreached areas, and making sure that these churches are firmly established on the foundation of God's Word. A few New Testament examples of this, and someone like Barnabas, Andronicus, Junius. Now you see, this, I believe, is a gift and a ministry that we can see going on today, that we do see going on today. We don't usually call it apostleships, and perhaps I think it's wise not to do so, given the confusion that, as we've said, this title can cause. But we move on. And there are similarities in what we've just said with the next gift that we're going to look at, that some are called to be prophets. Some are given the gift of prophecy. We see again, similarly, in Ephesians 2.20, prophets with apostles are seen to be the foundation of the church, with Christ as the chief cornerstone, the one who holds everything else together. Now, in terms of, of prophecy, prophecy at the level of what we would call Scripture, the Word of God. Prophecy at that level, I don't believe, after New Testament times, after the giving of our Bible, I don't believe there will be any more prophets or prophecies of that kind of foundation, that kind of authoritative nature. But there does seem to be another gift, a lesser gift of prophecy in the New Testament. Prophecy that doesn't seem to carry the same weight and the same authority as Scripture. Prophecy that we're told should be, be weighed in 1 Corinthians 14, 29. Prophecy where then the good has to be sifted out. Now you see, when we talk about measuring something, weighing something, then if we're going to do that, there has to be an authoritative standard that you can measure it against. And when you've got someone, I believe, with a lesser gift of prophecy sharing, a lesser prophet, then surely the only standard, the only absolute that that can be measured against is the Word of God. So what exactly is this about? Who exercises this gift? When might a gift like this be exercised? Well, some have suggested that this could maybe be found in a, a preacher who has a special gift of insight into the Word of God and a special gift in terms of applying that Word to life today. Others that this is something that might be found, say, in a, in a church meeting. When someone shares a, a verse maybe or a passage of Scripture and then goes on and applies it and says, you know, this is what the Word of God says. Does this then mean? Could this mean that we should be doing this, doing that or the other? With the church then, 
searching the word of God and led by the spirit of God, testing and seeking to discern just exactly what God is saying. It's actually hard to be precisely sure about this gift, just exactly what it is. But one thing I'm sure about, that as with apostles, it's best to avoid using the title prophet. Perhaps even to refer to something as prophecy in the church today because of the same danger, possibility of confusion. Because of the danger of attributing to the words of a man or of a woman today the same status and authority to their words as to the word of God. The next gift that Paul highlights here is given by Christ to help the church to grow in unity and grow in maturity is that of the evangelist. He gave some to be evangelists. Now, of course, all of us, every single Christian, is called to be a witness to the gospel. Acts 1 verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. But here, Christ also tells us, and we recognize, that to some are given the gift of evangelism, that he calls some to be evangelists. And what we're talking about here is a person, a man or a woman, who is especially gifted and effective in sharing the good news, in sharing the gospel message of Jesus. You know, they could maybe speak exactly the same words as somebody like me, but there's just an anointing about them. And Harold Honor, I spoke of earlier, he suggests how these various gifts and ministries might fit together. That the evangelists would win converts to the faith. The apostles would establish churches and the prophets would fill in needed revelation for the perfection of the saints. Some of these functions seem to have overlapped. Now, the next two gifts you'll notice, they seem to be, to be linked together, joined together. The sum here seems to cover both of these gifts. Some are called to be pastors and teachers. Let's be clear, though. There is no doubt that there are pastors, that there are those with a caring and a shepherding ministry in the church, the fundamental meaning of pastor. There are some who are not teachers. Also, there can be those within the church with a teaching gift who equally are not pastors. But you see, what Paul seems to be saying here is that in providing for growth in unity and maturity in the church, one gift that God gives to the church is those who are gifted both as pastors and teachers. Those who, to one extent or another, both of these gifts are combined in that. I just said that the word pastor emerges from the Greek word for a shepherd entrusted with the care of the flock. So then a pastor is called to care for the flock, for the people of God, and a teacher of God's word should be gifted in opening up, explaining and applying the word of God to the life of the people of God. But you see, the way these two come together, I believe, what the combination of these two gifts in one individual is to achieve is that in the pastors who are also teachers, 
These pastors, they refer to. They base their pastoral work clearly in the Word of God. And even more than that, their preaching, their teaching from the pulpit, that can also be an instrument of pastoral care. I remember Bruce Milner once telling me, I think it was during my time at Spurgeon's, but it might have been in a later conversation, speaking to me about the work of ministry and everything else. And he said that if we who are in the ministry, don't like that, but anyway, if we do the work of teaching properly, if we study God's word to open up the truth of that word, and if we preach it systematically and then apply it rigorously to the real life situations faced by the people of God today, then he said that 90% of the pastoral work in terms of pastoral personal problems that people are working through can be dealt with through the preaching of God's word. Just through the preaching, week by week. Now, some might want to argue that that's overstated, and, and maybe it is, who can say? But I would say that over the years, experience has taught me that the gifts that the ministry of pastor and teacher properly exercise feed one another. Warren Wearsby brings these two together like this. He says, the word of God is the food that nourishes the sheep. The word is the staff that guides and directs the sheep. The sheep. sheep. Now that's the nature of the gift Christ gives to enable the church to maintain and grow in unity. And do you know something? Over the years as I've read this passage, there's times I've wondered why Paul chose to identify on these particular gifts at this point in Ephesians. You know why it's different lists of gifts in different places in the New Testament. Wonder about it. I thought, you know, was it just arbitrary? Did he just maybe, in a sense, pluck these particular gifts out of a hat? Or was there a reason? Was there a clear thought through reason why Paul chose at this particular point to pick out these particular gifts? Well, you know, for me, I don't believe Paul was the kind of man to do things without a reason. But having looked and studied this passage over the last week or so, I'm now convinced, I believe I know what his reason was. For remember again what the context is here. And that's Paul's concern that the church maintain and grow in unity. And then, having set that context, he goes on to mention these gifts, which all, to one degree or another, are ministries related to the Word of God. So what Paul's saying then is that if the church is to know unity, if the church is to grow and mature, then we need to focus on the Word of God. And we need to nurture and respect and give a central place to those gifts and ministries of the Word in the church. But you know Having said that, what doesn't surprise me, given where we're at culturally as a society, ever more pleasure-seeking and experience-oriented, what doesn't surprise me is that the churches that actually seem to be growing at the moment, particularly in terms of numbers of young people that they're reaching, are largely those whose main focus is putting on a show and providing 
and experienced. I want to say, I'm not against worship. And I'm not against doing things well. But at the same time, if that focus means that the word of God is nudged to the side, that is really seeking to grapple and understand and apply and live in obedience to the deep truths of Scripture. If this is what that means, and it does at times seem to me to be the case at present, then that does concern me. I'm not going to run these churches down, though. I'm going to pray for them. And at the same time, I'm going to pray for churches like ours. That we will work at keeping the Word and the ministries of God's Word central, while not at the same time forgetting that there are areas of church life in which we need to learn to grow in and we need to learn to do better. Okay, we've looked at the giver of these gifts. We've looked at the nature of these gifts. Finally and very briefly, I just want us to look at the purpose of these gifts. It's there in verse 12. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So if we're going to sum it up in a word, then the purpose of all of these gifts is service. The purpose of these different gifts of God's word is to prepare, to equip, to build up all of God's people for service, for works of service, leading to the body of Christ being built up, that is, leading to the church, leading to the body, being and functioning as it should. You know, it's interesting that the word that in the NIV is translated service is actually in other versions translated ministry. Preparing God's people for works of ministry. And, and both of these are legitimate translations. But your ministry, I think, helps to get across something that I believe is very important we grasp. That is, that for far too long in the church, there has been a widespread misunderstanding. And that is that the work of ministry in the church is for the few, for the ministers. And that the rest of the church is there largely to be ministered to. We see Paul here tells us that that's not the case. That ministry, that service, is the work of all of God's people. That we're all called and we're all gifted in one way or another to minister and serve for Christ in the church or in the world. And ministries of the word. Say, for example, somebody who's operating in the kind of function that I am. Our task isn't to do all the work of ministry on our own or ever have to the presumption to think that we are. Our task is not to hold everything in our hands and seek to make sure that, that nothing happens without us controlling it in one way or another. Now, the task of a pastor or a, a pastor teacher is to teach, help, and encourage all of God's people to discover and develop and exercise their gifts. That's why I, one of the reasons why I don't like being given the title that's common in Scotland, the minister. Because, you see... I'm not the minister. 
I am a minister. Called to use whatever gifts and abilities I might have to help all of God's people into their ministry that together we might be the church, be the body, and minister together as a body, Christ's grace, the message of the gospel to a needy world. You see, that's what the church looks like. United and mature. May God, by His Spirit, help us more and more to be, to grow into this church. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your vision of what's important among your people. For your vision of how you see your church and how you want your church to be, how you want us to be working together in unity, serving together, those ministries of the word leading each one of us into the ministry that you have for us. Lord, you love your church. You love your church. Help us to be the church you're calling us to be. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.